Welcome to the Community Conversations Podcast. I'm Chaplain Captain Caleb McCary with Chaplain Major Delana Small, and today we're going to be talking with Chaplain Lieutenant Colonel Dan Kersey, the Chaplain Captain Career Course Manager for the United States Army Institute for Religious Leadership, about virtue ethics, character development, and why it's vital that chaplains consistently invest in character development training wherever they are assigned. Yes, and I have the opportunity to introduce Chaplain Kersey. He currently serves as the course manager for the Chaplain Captain's Career Course at the United States Army Religious Leader Academy, RLA, of the United States Army Institute for Religious Leadership, USAIRL, at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. From a long line of military members serving. Uh, Chaplain Kersey was actually born at Marine Corps Air Station, Cherry Point, North Carolina, and grew up in Okinawa and Northern Virginia. Upon his father's retirement from the United States Marine Corps, the family settled in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which he still considers home. Chaplain Kersey, welcome to Community Conversation. So I'm really happy to be here. Thanks we'll get into me. this. Yes, yeah. I want to know, and I want our listeners to hear about your formative years and really what brought you into the Chaplain Corps. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So um, like you said a minute ago, my dad was a Marine. He was a uh, Naval Academy graduate in 1966 and did 20 years in the Marine Corps. So I grew up in a military family, moving around all over the place. Uh, some of my earliest memories were of my dad. Uh, at the end of his career, we were living in Washington, D.C., and he was stationed at Quantico and in the Pentagon. And I just remember thinking, wow, he gets up early. What a stupid thing to do. I never want to be in the military. And now here I am, uh, many years later, doing exactly what he's been doing. In fact, about to move to Washington, D.C. and have to get up that early every morning myself. So that's just the way that works. Um, so my dad's side of the family, like I said, my dad was a Marine. My uncle was a tanker in the Army. My grandfather was a waste gunner uh, in the Pacific Theater on a bomber in World War II. Uh, my mom's side of the family, everybody's in ministry. Uh, so my grandfather is a, was a pastor. Before he passed away, he directed a Bible camp in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. My great-grandfather actually founded that camp and was a pastor. And just about everybody on my mom's side of the family is involved in church or parachurch ministry in one capacity or another. So it was just sort of this natural fit, I guess. Um, it was inevitable. I was going to be involved in the military chaplaincy somehow. Um, but what really sealed that for me was I was in seminary uh, on 9-11. I was getting ready to go that morning. I just got out of the shower, had gotten dressed, walked into the living room, turned the TV on just in time to see the first tower fall. And uh, I was on my way into a class called uh, The History and Culture of Israel in the Ancient Near East. And I was listening to the radio when the second tower fell on my drive in. And my professor for that class was a reserve component army chaplain, uh, 06. And he walked in and said, guys, I haven't gotten a phone call yet, but I don't think you're going to see me again for a little while. And sure enough, the next day he was gone. And um, he got back from that assignment. And in that period of time, I started thinking about, uh, you know, everything that was going on in the world at that point in time. And uh, on a more, you know, pragmatic side of the house, I had just gone through five years of undergraduate schooling at a small private college, and 
four and a half years of seminary at a, you know, at a small Christian seminary and had a lot of debt. So there was a, a marriage of those things. It's what's going on right now in the world. There's the family history and there's the practical side of things that I, I've, I've got to take care of myself financially and uh, take care of, uh, I had just started dating my then wife or, or my now wife, I should say. Um, and, uh, was trying to look forward to stabilizing the financial future a little bit. So all of those things kind of combined to bring me to the chaplaincy. I, I appreciate that. And it, it's, uh, I think sometimes we, we kind of shy away from saying, yeah, you know, there was kind of a financial There's aspect a financial to it. And, yeah. you know, my, I, I was not in seminary at the time, but I was graduating high school when 9-11 happened. Thank you for making me feel And I, I know, I sir. That. So you don't uh, want to know I, how old I was. Right, right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, 9-11 happened, and that kind of was the push I needed for something I was already considering, which was joining the military mm-hmm. and coming from a family without a lot of financial means. Uh, that was going to help me pay for college, too. Yeah. So I, I, I resonate with that. Well, sir, our, our topic today uh, is character development. We're going to talk some about virtue ethics. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't hear a little bit about what it's like to be an ethicist in the chaplain corps, because you spent a few years doing that. Yeah, I was the ethics instructor here at the chaplain school for three years. The the experience you have as the ethics instructor at USACS or, or the Religious Leadership Academy that it is now is a little different than you might have at some of the other installations. Uh if you are an ethicist at any of the other military army schoolhouses, you're going to serve primarily as the staff chaplain as well as a developer and instructor. When you are here at USA Earl, you, your primary job is development and instruction um, because the chaplain corps is responsible for moral leadership training. Uh, we need to make sure that our soldiers are excuse me, our students are prepared for the responsibilities they have in advising their commander on uh, matters of morals, ethics, morale. So we spend a lot more time diving into the Army ethic and even philosophical ethics than you might at some of the other schoolhouses. So if you were a, an ethicist at, uh, let's say, the, the chemical school, you might get nine hours of instructional time with each course as they come through. Here at the schoolhouse, I was getting 40-plus hours of instructional time with each small group that came through C4, uh, 35 to 40 hours of instructional time with the Chibolic students when they came through, uh, significantly less with Orslick and with the reserve component C4 class, but still that's enough to keep you gainfully employed when you're also having to develop all of those lesson plans and that material as well. Um, so that, that was my primary reality here was develop and teach, which I enjoyed thoroughly. Uh, and the idea is that you want to get students trained up in an understanding of what the Army ethic is how the Army ethic is connected to the fact that the Army is a profession, how those things inform one another, and how the Army ethic then should drive and motivate everything that you do as a member of the military profession. In addition to that, as chaplains, I'm also linking in larger philosophical and theological ethical frameworks and systems 
so that they understand, the students understand when they go uh, advise their commands, when they counsel their soldiers, when they uh, function as the ethical moral leader for their units, that they are um, linked into something larger than themselves that goes back a long, long ways and that it's rooted in something uh, solid. So, sir, if I'm, a, if I'm a battalion chaplain or maybe a chaplain candidate and I'm listening to this and I go, man, that ethics thing, that sounds really cool. What's the, what's the process like uh, for, the, for the selection? And then what does the education piece of that look like? The selection process has changed from when I did this. So I, I, I'm not even sure I could speak uh, intelligently about what the selection process is now. I think I have a broad understanding. When, when it was my turn uh, several years ago, there was a, a board that met to consider everyone for the various advanced civil schooling options that the Chaplain Corps offered. And uh, they prepared an OML, and they kind of started at the top and started calling down. And, and if you were near the top of that list, which uh, I think I was, I don't know, fairly near the top of the list, uh, they'll call you and say, hey, we have these options still available. Are you interested? So you were kind of lumped in uh, with those who were going to do family life, who were going to do CPE or world religions or uh, resource management. And uh, the, the one of those options that most interested me was ethics. So when they called, I said, I will do that one, please. And then you go to school on the advanced civil schooling program. So you had to find a school that could allow you to complete a degree in ethics in a year, and I chose a school back home in Michigan that I could go to uh, and packed a two-year THM into one year. So I, I thought I had a great idea. I'll go home. I'll see my friends and family for a year, and I did not see my friends and family. I saw the insides of books, many, many books, but uh, it, was, it was well worth it, even though there were several times I was ready to throw some of those books against the wall in the middle of that much workload. Um, when you complete that degree, you then are assigned to one of the several branch schoolhouses. So in my case, here at the, the chaplain school, and you fulfill a three-year utilization requirement. It's actually, I think, three days of utilization for every one day you were in school. And uh, my wife had had some health issues. I was originally supposed to be assigned to the chemical school. And so they sent me here. And I served as a small group leader for C4 for a year while my predecessor finished his ethics instruction, his utilization. Then I launched into three years of utilization. And then I've extended another year here to uh, finalize our adoption of our daughter. So very shortly, be wrapping up five years here, which is crazy. Yeah, and uh, I can speak to that uh, time as a small group leader, if I remember. You, so. yeah. <laughs> you had to endure that. We're not trying yes. to make you feel old, sir. We, <laughs> we promise. No, no we promise. <laughs> so um, in a recent presentation here at Fort Jackson, you talked about the idea of men without chess. Can you unpack this idea a little bit more for us here today and why this uh, picture is helpful for chaplains as they think through character development in their soldiers? Sure. Um, so this, this picture of men without chests is uh, an image that C.S. Lewis used in his book, The Abolition of Man. Uh, and it comes from you know, classical and medieval thinking about where the seat of different... Um, 
aspects of humanity is located in the human body, which is a weird thing to say. But we will say things nowadays like, follow your heart, because the heart is the seat of your emotions, right? Or you say, no, use your head, because that's, that's the seat of your intellect. And we kind of present this split, this head-heart split in the way we think about people. Um, but back in the classical period and the medieval period, there was actually sort of three layers to that. So you had the head, which was the seat of the intellect. And for them, the seat of the emotions was not the heart. It was the stomach, which is weird to us. But is it any weirder than the heart necessarily? That, not, not really, in my opinion. The chest then became the seat of virtue. So the concern was if you were overly driven by your head, you could be coldly intellectual without really having any concern for people's emotional needs. Uh, you could be almost a robot if they had that concept back then. Or if you were overly driven by your stomach, you're going to be driven by your emotions, but not have the logic or the reason to channel those emotions in the right way. The chest then became that mediating area the seat of virtue, of character. And character then shapes how you think and your logic and points it in the right direction. And character also channels your emotions so that you are not driven away to do reckless or foolish things because of the power and strength of your emotions. And Lewis's argument was, uh, we have raised a generation of men without chests. We no longer are concerned about the, the role of virtue in society. We are either purely intellectual or we're either purely emotional or we're torn between the two. And we need something to help us mediate and guide those powerful other influences. Is that... Yeah, so how, how do you see that uh, idea playing into... Uh, things like moral leadership training or sure. character development training that, that chaplains might engage in. Sure. We live in a society right now that is increasingly uh, giving preeminence to emotion as the primary factor in decision-making. So that's why we say when you follow your heart, you're supposed to follow your heart, do the thing that makes you happy, do the thing that finds you joy. And while there may be some wisdom to that, that can also lead people uh, into some dangerous places. The army, as an institution, very often wants things to be coldly logical. We are process-based, procedural-based, and sometimes people get lost in that machinery, chewed up by that machinery. And it's important for us to be able to bring back in this concept or reinforce this concept of virtue. The army pays some tribute to this in the army ethic and the army values uh, where they speak to these characteristics should define us. Um, but that is one of three, ver or, excuse me, one of three ethical frameworks the army wants us to use. It speaks to um, the army would like you to consider rules, a rules-based deontological ethic when you make decisions. It also wants you to think about outcomes which can often be emotionally driven. Uh, what do we need to do? Well, what's going to happen as a result of this decision? And 
the the problem with that thinking is unless I've developed virtue, unless I've developed character, why am I going to care what the right answer is? Why should I bother with what the rules have to say? Why should I be concerned about the outcomes of my decision beyond what benefits me? Um, and I think the Army as an institution assumes a certain degree of virtue, a certain degree of character. But we don't do a whole lot. I haven't seen in my time in the Army effective training about how to cultivate that character. Hmm. And I know you've written a little bit about that recently yourself. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. So uh, skipping down here a little bit, what would you tell chaplains who might be concerned that uh, a focus on philosophical, ethical ideas detracts from their identity as clergy? Sure, and that's a good question. Um, I don't think that that having an understanding of these classical frameworks, uh, rules-based ethics, outcomes-based ethics, virtue ethics, none of them are inconsistent with a theological worldview. Uh, in and of themselves, I don't think that they are sufficient, but they are not in any way problematic, except in potentially how they're applied uh, apart from a theological worldview. So if you can find a way in which there is consistency between these philosophical systems and your own theology, I don't see that there's any problem in using them. How would you encourage a, uh, somebody who's considering developing a system of moral leadership training to, uh, to have that integrated approach uh, to the philosophical systems and their uh, theological convictions and identity as well? So that's a, that's a hard question to answer. Um, thank you for setting me up for failure. Oh, yes, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, no, it's, it's takes a lot of deep thought, right? I can't, it's not something I'm going to put together and just have happen. I have to do the reading and I have to do the thinking and piecing together of philosophy and theology and apply it to the particular circumstances I am in right now. I've also got to understand that I have soldiers who don't share my theological worldview. They don't share my faith. Uh, and so I may be able to advise them and counsel them, or leaders, I may be able to advise and counsel them using philosophy in a manner that is consistent with my faith, but is not explicitly drawn from my faith tradition. And I, I don't have any problem with that. Some people might, but I think that that is a perfectly valid expression of both my faith and philosophy. And sir, just as we start to close out our conversation today, I mean, we've kind of talked a lot about your expertise and everything, but I'm always curious when I look to senior chaplains, how they over the years and their careers have maintained their own, um, you know, spiritual fitness, their own sense of that clerical identity, or, you know, even what you've talked about learning how to apply, you know, what you've learned in the most pastoral context in, in that advisement role. So can you speak to that first, you know, what you do every day to maintain that spiritual health? And then on the tail end of that, please let us know if there are any books you'd recommend yep. for us to read today. Oh, I have a long list of books. I can <laughs> Only one. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> I have, uh, well, 
only half kidding. I have four small children who keep me keenly aware of my own <laughs> shortcomings and failures um, and a lovely wife who I don't deserve. And uh, I owe so much to them that I have to be able to uh, be the husband and the father they need me to be. And I cannot do that apart from, you know, from my faith tradition, my, my reliance on Christ and the, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I have, I am keenly aware of my own shortcomings and my own uh, desperate need for grace. And if I start getting to the point where I think I've got it all together, then that's dangerous. So I, I think there's some degree of... Um, the grace of God reminding me of how much I need the grace of God, if that makes any sense at all. Yes, sir. Um, and I, I'm actively involved in my, my chapel programs here. I've been preaching, and the, the conviction that comes each time I put together a sermon, it makes me go, okay, I've got to go talk about this, but I don't measure up to this thing that I'm supposed to be talking to everybody else about. Um, it's humbling and it's hard, but it's um, so valuable and so worth it. I don't know if that's that's kind of where I come from on that. I think it's it's the constant recognition that I am not enough apart from apart from Christ, which keeps me coming back to Him. As far as books go, I got a list right here. Um, let, let us have it, sir. All right. So, if if we're talking. Virtue ethics, it's hard to, to even have that discussion without talking about Aristotle, Nicomachean ethics, right. uh, St. Augustine's The City of God, um, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica. That's all deep philosophy stuff. Some more modern things that are of significance. Um, C.S. Lewis's The Discarded Image, uh, The Abolition of Man, which I spoke about a little bit ago. Christiana Hale uh, wrote a book called uh, Deeper Heaven, which interacts with C.S. Lewis's what we typically call the Space Trilogy. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually the, the Ransom Trilogy is probably a better way to, to speak of that. Um, Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue mm -hmm. is a profoundly powerful book. One of my favorite books on virtue ethics is Oliver O'Donovan's Resurrection and Moral Order, which will hurt your brain. You need to read a paragraph, <laughs> go for a walk to process, come back, read that paragraph again, realize you still didn't get it, uh, it takes a while. Um, Diogenes Allen's Philosophy for Understanding Theology is a great book. Um, and then uh, one I've been reading recently that's really uh, expanded my, my thinking about some things is Carl Truman, uh, a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, um, all of which are just fascinating, if you're at all philosophically minded, very important books. And then for prayer and devotions, I like The Valley of Vision, um, apart from, you know, scripture itself. So that's a great list, sir. I, I feel like you're, you know, going down the bibliography of my dissertation yes. there in the first <laughs> part of it. So thank you for sharing that, sir. And uh, Chaplain Kersey, thank you so much for joining us on Community Conversations and for sharing some of your own story and why character development training and virtue ethics are vital tools for chaplains to employ for the betterment of our army. 
Chaplain Small and I are lining up more guests for the podcast, but if you have some specific topics or guests you'd like us to consider, look us up on Global and send us an email. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcasting app, and while you're at it, leave us a rating or review, which helps other people discover this content. Thank you for listening, and join us again next time for another Community Conversation.